Luke chapter 14, verse 1. It says that it came to pass that as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they, that is the Pharisees and those that were gathered, they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace, and he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And so we see Jesus here uh, in his ministry and he's in this part of his ministry where he is traveling from the northern region of the Galilee from which he has departed and now he's making his way down to the southern portion of the land that is where Jerusalem is situated where he will ultimately uh, be tried and then crucified and rise again and so these chapters of Luke uh, that we're in right now all the way from now up through chapter 18 chapter 19 are just teachings that Jesus gave while he's on his way moving through that portion of the land. And you'll notice if you were to just thumb through the pages, if you have a red letter Bible, that most of the words between now and chapter 19 are in red. And so basically what we have recorded for us are the things that Jesus taught during that period of time where he is now culminating or wrapping up his ministry. And we really are in, in the latter portion of the ministry of Christ by the time even that we get to chapter 14. But we're told at this point that Jesus is invited into the house of one of the chief Pharisees for a meal on the Sabbath day and that Jesus agrees to go and he, 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 he takes whoever's with him and he goes into um, this Pharisee's house. Now I'll point out to you as we've heard in, in previous studies that the Pharisees were an exclusive group of uh, spiritual and also civil leaders in the land of Israel during Jesus' day. Their group was formed in the time between the Old and the New Testaments, after the Jews returned from their captivity, but before the time that Jesus Christ came into the world. And the purpose for their existence in the land was more or less to legislate righteousness. You see, the reason why the Jews had lost possession of their land was because they had turned from the commands and ways of God. And so the Pharisees were instituted in order to prevent that from ever happening again. And so they would be there and they would be the ones that would be the spiritual authority that would declare what is legal, lawful, and acceptable from what is not in the land uh, from then on out. There was a group of them, they were limited to 6,000. And so it was an exclusive group. And you had to be more or less born into it or elected if there was a position open. But it was a tight-knit reign that they had upon, uh, uh, upon themselves. We're told also that this man was not just a Pharisee, but that he was a chief of the Pharisees. Meaning that he was among the who's who of the who's who. Because if the Pharisees were the who's who, then this man is a ruler of that group and he held out distinction even over all of them. And so in that, what we recognize here, first of all, in this man, 
who's invited Jesus to his house is that he is, first of all, probably very intelligent. You don't get into that kind of a place amongst that kind of a group, especially amongst the Israelites, unless you have a little bit of a mind inside your head. This man would no doubt be able to contend and keep up with the lawyers and the best of those that were intellectual in those days. He also was no doubt a little bit intimidating. That when he was in the room, everybody knew that he was there. It was one of those things like when your boss or when someone that you highly respect is around. You might not be talking to them. They might not be talking to you. But you're absolutely aware that you are in their presence, that they are in the room. And no doubt this man had that kind of clout amongst those that were there at the feast. Another thing to consider is that this man is probably quite a bit older than Jesus, whom he's invited to the feast. Remember that Jesus is only 33 years old at this time that he comes into this man's house. And this man is probably twice his age. So if you can imagine just the difference in appearance, someone who's 33 years old actually looks quite young. And in the presence of someone like this chief among the Pharisees, there would be a great distance between their ages. And again, that being a symbol of respect and status for this Pharisee, this chief of the Pharisees, that he's essentially invited this child or junior rabbi into his house. This man has the strength of position and he has the respect of the people And we find that he is also a man of extreme wealth because we're going to see that he has a large house and he's able to furnish many rich guests as he's there. And so you can kind of see the picture that's before us, the scene between this chief Pharisee who's throwing this Sabbath meal and Jesus, this itinerant, simple, somewhat impoverished rabbi that's now been brought into this man's home. Now, the question that's before us is why would this man bring Jesus into his house to share the meal on this day? If you think about it, there's really only two potential reasons. Number one is that this man might actually have a sincere heart, that he might actually be curious concerning the things that he's hearing about this young man, and that perhaps he is what the people are purporting that he is, that he is the Messiah or the Savior of Israel. Now, although that's a possibility, knowing Jesus' track record with the Pharisees and the way that they have treated him thus far, that's probably not the case. There was a Pharisee who did sincerely seek Jesus, a man by the name of Nicodemus. And very early in Jesus' ministry, we're told that he came to Jesus privately at night and he inquired with honest questions wondering about the things that Jesus was doing and teaching and what they meant and implied. And we see later on that Nicodemus had a conversion experience. That's very different, vastly different than what we see this Pharisee doing here. So what would be then the other reason why this man might invite Jesus to his house? Well, it's probably, it's a setup. It's probably in some way to put him on trial amongst the people and in some way to get him to do something that will cause him to discredit himself or to lose the respect of the people or to exalt the position of the Pharisee and to diminish the position in the person of Christ. Now, why would this Pharisee be interested in exalting himself and diminishing the reputation and the person of Christ? Well, it's very simple. This Pharisee 
His entire life is held together on the basis of his interpretation of the law of Moses. If in some way his teachings or his positions or the things that the people come to him to hear and learn, if those things are discredited or debased, then his whole entire world becomes undone. He loses the pedestal of his position in the minds of the people. He becomes unnecessary because they no longer need to go to him because there's someone of higher authority that is teaching something else. And so his position is on the line. His reputation is on the line. His wealth and the riches that he is is, is earning in that position as a Pharisee, that is also on the line. So if Jesus, who is a stark contrast to what this Pharisee is, if he is correct, then that makes this Pharisee absolutely wrong. And it means that the foundation of his whole life is rocked. And so this Pharisee, no doubt, amongst all the Pharisees, had the mindset that their group, their establishment, was a too-big-to-fail establishment. And thus Jesus must be put in a place where he can be discredited and cast down so as that they can continue and remain. Now, what is taking place between Jesus and this Pharisee is something that really happens in the life of almost every individual uh, that ever lives. You see, we all come into this world, and in our coming into this world, we, 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 we come in and we kind of form a worldview. We're brought up in a, a, a neighborhood or in a culture or in a country, and, and we're taught a set of standards and ideals, and there's things that we absorb from what we learned from our parents growing up and, and, and assimilate into a culture and a society that lives around us. And we learn through that to function within the society that we are a part of, and sometimes even to prosper under it. But at some point, God is faithful that every one of us comes face to face with the fact that there is a God. And we're face to face with the message of Jesus Christ and of his gospel and what it implies concerning our path that we're on and the path that he is saying leads to eternal life. And so when we, when you and I come into contact with Christ and we hear his message that is so different from the message that we are living under in the world apart from Christ, we have two choices. We can either embrace the teaching and the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ, or we can resist it because we want to continue in what we are comfortable with. But in order for us to do that, we must discredit or in some way uh, uh, cast Jesus aside in some way to tarnish him so as not to have to in our minds be accountable to his message. Now, that happens to every one of us. But think about when that happens in the life of someone who is religious, like in the case of this Pharisee uh, that's here before Jesus right now. I mean, when your whole life you're thinking that you're serving God according to the way that God wants to be served. And now all of a sudden you're put face to face with the truth or with the potential that everything that you've been believing and everything that you've been practicing in that religion is wrong. And that if you want to worship God correctly, then that means you're going to have to change everything about the way that you worship and the way that you believe. And that's what this Pharisee is face to face with. And that's an extremely difficult position for a person to find themselves in uh, like this man here. But that's the scene that we have before us. Jesus versus the Pharisee. Well, we're told that there's a man in the midst of this group that has the dropsy. 
The dropsy was a condition that would cause extreme water retention. It would cause this man to look obese and extremely bloated in the midst. Now, as we're going to find, all of the guests that are invited to this are among the rich and noble amongst the Israelites. So this man who's there in the middle of the feast is most likely a plant. They know that Jesus, his nature, is that he's going to draw his attention to the person who's the most needy, the most downcast in the group. And so they place this man with the dropsy in the midst. And of course, when Jesus takes in the whole scene, the Pharisee, the pomp, the rich guests, and this man with the dropsy, he reads it perfectly. And it says that he answers a question without even being asked. It's kind of like the game of Jeopardy. You know, when they give you the answer and you have to determine what the question is. And that's what Jesus does. They've given him essentially uh, the answer. There's a man in front of him that needs help. And Jesus looks at the whole thing and he gives them the question they're asking. The question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day or not? Or isn't it? And so Jesus looks around at them. They don't give any response. And so Jesus does what Jesus does. And he takes this man who's sick. He brings him to himself. He heals him. And then he releases him and then he brings rebuke upon them and he answers the second time. He answers his own question that he has drummed up uh, from their scene. He says this. He says, which of you having an ox or an ass on the Sabbath day that falls into a pit will not immediately release it? And it says that they could not answer him uh, a word to the question that he had posed to them. I love what Jesus does here because he does exactly what they didn't want him to do, but that they did want him to do. They didn't want him to do it because, of course, in their doctrine, they claimed that it was illegal. And the easier thing would be for Jesus just to say, hey, you know what, I'll heal him tomorrow. And, and, and hey, just come back and see me on Monday or see me privately after the service. But if he wasn't going to do that, then what they really wanted him to do was to heal the man. That in some way they could accuse him of transgressing their tradition and their law. And so Jesus does it, and in so doing, it is more or less a slap in the face to them. Imagine it. A 33-year-old kid, essentially, in the midst of gray heads, pomp, robes, and hats. And he does the very thing that they didn't want him to do. And he does it with boldness, audacity, and then he does it with wisdom and reason by giving to them the answer afterwards and saying, which of you wouldn't do the same thing if it was your donkey or your ox? How much more should it be done now for a man? Now, I don't want to paint the picture that Jesus was just some kind of a rebel, that he had a rebellious spirit and he knew what they didn't want him to do, so he was just going to be obstinate and do it anyway. It wasn't his nature, Jesus, to be intentionally offensive or intimidating or humiliating for no reason at all. The reason why Jesus heals this man, well, first of all, he cared about the man. That's paramount. But secondarily, the reason why he did it when he knew that it would cause controversy is for two reasons. Number one is because these Pharisees were exactly wrong in the way that they interpreted the nature and character of God. And number two, they were exactly wrong in the way that they represented God to the people that they were called to be leading. And so they were not only misled in who they thought God was, but also anyone who was following them as an example that wanted to know God would also be misled. And so what Jesus does is he follows this miracle that he did for those reasons with teachings 
in order to correct the error that they had about God within their hearts. And so he gives to them a parable first. And then he speaks directly to the owner of the house, the chief Pharisee, and he gives to him a stern rebuke. And so notice the parable that followed the miracle. Verse 7. It says that he put forth a parable to those that were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, the best rooms, saying unto them, when you are bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than you be bidden of him or invited. And he that bade thee and him, the more honorable man, Come and say to you, give this man place, and you begin with shame to take the lowest room. And so you can imagine the scene. You get to the wedding, and you see that there's an opening at the head table, and you think, wow, I could be the guest of honor. I could sit right next to the groom or the bride. And so you think, well, there's no one sitting there now. It's an extra seat. Everybody else is coupled up, so I'll just sit there in that seat. And so you sit there, and you think, this is great. I got the best seat right up front. Then all of a sudden, the master of the feast, the father of the bride comes in. He comes in with a man who's very distinguished, a head of state perhaps. He comes in by himself. And you're watching, you're kind of looking down, you're pretending not to be seen, but in your heart you know exactly what's going to happen. And so they come up to the front of the room and the master of the feast, the father of the bride, he looks at you as well as the man that's distinguished. And he says, hey, you know, uh, I see that you're in the seat here. It's not your seat. Get up. Your seat is actually way out there in the back, out the glass doors. You see them? Yeah, just go through those doors and keep going. You'll see another set of glass doors? Keep going. Then you see a little Pontiac out in the parking lot. You'll find a single seat behind a steering wheel. Go take that one. That's the one that we've we've designed for you. There would be nothing more shameful in that society than to endure that type of humiliation in that type of setting. And that's the picture that Jesus paints for them. He says, hey, when you go to a feast... Take the lowest room. But when you're bidden, verse 10, go and sit down in the lowest room that when he that bade thee comes, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then you shall have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And so Jesus gives this parable of the ambitious guest who takes the highest seat. And the reason that he gives them this parable is that he saw how everyone that was bidden to this feast sought for the best seats that they could actually get. They were fighting each other to get to the front of the room. And when Jesus saw that attitude, it inspired him to speak these words. And he applies it by saying that the way that you ought to be is to humble yourselves and take the lowest seat that you might be exalted rather than to exalt yourself because the result of that is that you will ultimately be humbled. And there's two great lessons within this passage. One is the obvious and the other is within the context. And the obvious lesson in this passage is that the way up in the kingdom of God is always down. There's no disposition or attitude that pleases God and moves his hand more than that of humility. When he sees in us that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought and we are willing to see ourselves as less and as nothing. And when we take that mindset and we live accordingly, that becomes our place of exaltation within God's kingdom. He exalts the proud. I'm sorry, he, yes, no, the humble. He exalts the humble. 
but he humbles the proud. That's always the way of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we see it lived out. But the other lesson that's in this passage, and it's related to the context, is this. Is that nearness to God is not attained through religious achievement. See, the Pharisees and the spiritual people in Israel in those days, the lawyers and the scribes, they had created more or less a spiritual hierarchy. They'd created a rat race in Israel. And if you wanted to be godly, if you wanted to know God, then the way to do that was to get into that rat race and through accomplishment, through achievement, through sacraments, through doing religious and spiritual things in the eyes of the people, that what that meant is that you would not only be exalted in the eyes of men, but that God sees what man sees. So if you can attain a good position before men, then that means you've also attained a good position before God. And that was the message that they were sending, that the higher you can get with men, then the more blessed you will be by God. And the fact that these men were pushing for the closest seats to the guest of honor was an evidence that that's the way that they believed about God. Now, the problem with that is that it is exactly wrong. That the way to be near to God is not through religious attainment and sacrament and sacrifice. That's not what God is looking for at all. What does God say is the key to being near to him? It's Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. The prophet Isaiah says this. He says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? The idea is that the people were exalted in their own mind because of the great sacrifices that they were bringing to God and the things that they were doing for Him. But God says, Look, the heaven is my throne. You can't even touch the glory of heaven with the smallest of your works. And the earth, the thing that you're glorying in, it's my footstool. It's the place I rest my feet when I want to sit down. God says, you can't work your way into my favor or into my blessing. Verse 2, he says, for all those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Lord. But to this man will I look. Who's the one that God will show favor upon? Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. See, the way to be close to God in this life or in any context at all is not through the things that we do or what we attain in His name, but when He sees humility within our hearts, when He sees that we're willing to be honest with ourselves about our broken and fallen condition, when we're willing to fall upon the cross and at the foot of the cross and plead for mercy there because we know what we are, that it's there that God says, that's the one that I'll esteem. You recall the picture, the time that there were two that stood before the Lord in the temple. The one was a Pharisee, the other one was impoverished. And the Pharisee said, God, I thank thee that I'm not like this sinner, that I tithe and I give of all and I fast two times in the week. And the other one who dared not to even look up to heaven but smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one of these do you think went away justified? I tell you, it was the one who humbled himself. And that's the one that God will look upon. And the way to nearness to God is not through what we do. It's through an honest and sincere assessment of ourselves and falling upon His mercy at the foot of the cross and pleading for His grace there and for His presence and His blessing upon our lives. That is the way to nearness to God. It's interesting that that was the foundation that God laid with the nation of Israel. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, God says this to his people. He says that the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. That the whole reason why God chose to put his favor on the nation at all had absolutely nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with the fact that he's a loving God and that he chose to put his love upon them. And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Hey, when did God save you? He saved you when you were a slave. When did God send Christ to the cross? The Bible says it was when we were yet his enemies. We have absolutely nothing to bring to him, neither before we're saved or after. And so the way into his favor is through lowliness of mind. And thus Jesus says, they that exalt themselves will be humbled and they that humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus turns his attention to the master of the feast in verse 12. It says that he said also to him that bade him, when you make a dinner or a supper, call not your friends, nor your brethren, nor your kinsmen, your family members, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and a recompense be made to you. But when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you shall be blessed. For they cannot recompense you or repay you, for you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So the rebuke that's now directed at the host and, he, and the rebuke concerns the rich guests and the familiar people, his friends that he invited to him, addresses the second mistake that these people had made. That not only had they believed in themselves that religious achievement was the way to closeness to God, but they were painting the picture to those that were looking on that God only wants to hang around with religiously accomplished and polished people. That God has no interest in the nobody. God has no interest in the poor or the maimed or the blind or those that can do nothing for him. God is only interested in those that can repay, those that can do something back in return. And so unless you're like us, God really has no place for you at his table. But have you noticed, not just in the life of Jesus, but throughout the whole Bible, that God's always interested in those that are poor and maimed and lame and crippled and blind. Those are exactly the kind of people that God is interested in. That's why he chose Israel in the first place. And so Jesus rebukes this Pharisee because the example that he was given to all the people that were seeking after God was that they had no chance of being around him because God wasn't interested in them. And nothing could have been further from the truth. God wanted them to be near to him. So he says, you'll be blessed if you do this, if you invite the maimed and the poor and the blind. And the reason is because you'll have the sense that you're doing exactly what God would do And also because you'll be rewarded in the resurrection of the just because you're both representing him rightly and because you cannot be repaid on earth. Now, what's interesting here is that there is actually one man who's there sitting at the feast who seems at least to get it. Notice what he says to Jesus in verse 15. It says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he, that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He recognized the glory of what was to come and the feast that God would one day prepare. And he realized, oh, to be bidden to that feast and to be a part of that table, what a blessing that would be to be accepted by God. Isn't it interesting? Can you hear the irony? 
is that this man who's even invited to this feast feels that God wouldn't even want him at his table. Whoa, blessed is that man that would be invited to that supper. None of us could ever attain unto that. If only he knew. Notice that Jesus says to him, verse 16, Jesus looks right at this man who longs for that supper. And he said this, another parable. He says, a certain man made a great supper and he bade many. And he sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. And so this man plans a supper. And of course, in the parable, the man that he's speaking of is none other than God the Father himself. And the feast that he's speaking of is the feast that this man spoke of in verse 15, the feast that will inaugurate the kingdom of God, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Jesus tells us that the Father, that he invited many guests to come to this feast. And when the supper was finally ready and all things were prepared and it was time for the bells to ring and people to come, it says that he sent his servant to say to those that were bidden, to now come for things are now ready. But notice what happens in verse 18. It says that they all, all those that were invited, with one consent, that is with one reason, began to make excuses. Isn't that interesting? They have a reason for not wanting to come, but they don't give that reason. Instead, they begin to make excuses because when we find out what the reason is, they couldn't give that reason. It would be embarrassing and shameful. So they begin to make excuses. Um, the first said unto him, I, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Now that is probably one of the worst excuses I've ever heard. And here's why. Because no one in their right mind would ever buy a piece of land without examining it first. No one would do that. It makes absolutely no sense at all. I mean, this man's story is full of holes right off the bat. But then the second man, it says, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray that you would have me excused. Now, again, it's the same reason that you would say to this guy, you bought five yoke of oxen without first testing them and knowing what they were capable of producing in the field. Understand that one yoke of oxen would be a large sum of money for any family in Israel to possess on their own, even one. And so for this man to be buying five, he's involved in some either some heavy industry concerning his farm or he's into commerce and trading. And thus he's a dealer. He's wheeling and dealing in oxen and tractors, John Deere, if you would. And this man is into making a lot of money. And so for the sake of his income and his business, he has no time for the things of God and to be interrupted by something as menial in his mind as the wedding supper of the land. Well, then the third says in verse 20, another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. He's different than the others. The other said, could you please have me excused? This guy just goes, eh, I'm not coming. I married a wife. That's a bad reason. You could bring her with you. I'm sure she's invited. <laughs> you know, she's not the only one, you know, uh, in the whole thing. But this guy, he's at this point, the excuses have gotten so bad that he just says that he can't come. Now, understand this, that we were told back up in verse 16 that the invitations were sent. And the implication was that the RSVPs were made. In other words, all of these guests are expected to be at the table. A place has been prepared for them. And now at this point, they've made the decision that they are not going to come to the feast. 
And in the United States of America, that's not really that big of a deal. I mean, if you skip out on something and you have a reason to do it, as long as you have a good excuse, it's kind of something that's excusable. You know, you might, someone might say something about it, but it's really not that, that big. But in that society, it would be a huge offense to say that you were going to be somewhere and then to not go, and especially to make an excuse for something else. And so the response of the master of the feast, it says, verse 21, it says, so that servant came and he showed his Lord these things. And then the master of the house being angry, notice that he's angry. He said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Now, that's the second time in this chapter that we've heard about the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. That's what Jesus said that you're to invite when you hold a feast, not the rich and those that can accompany you. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a moment. And so the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, then go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now, it would be offensive in that society, in that culture, to accept an invitation and then to make an excuse and not show up. But I want you to think about how offensive it is if the one who's inviting you to that feast is God And the name of that feast is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the implication behind the invitation is that he killed his son and allowed him to be subject to the cross so that your sins might be forgiven and you might come to that place. And you might be a part of that kingdom. What these people were saying, in a sense, to him is that what you did for us isn't worthy of our affection or our attention. And the price that you paid may have been great, but it's something that we're not interested in. Remember when it said with one consent, they began to make excuses? Do you know what the one consent was? The one reason why all three of these guests excused themselves is because they didn't want the company of the Father. And that was the heart that was underneath all of the show that the Pharisees were putting forward. They looked all righteous and pious and holy, that they were God's people. But Jesus is exposing that in their heart, they really want nothing to do with God at all. Everything is all about them. It's about their position, about their wealth, about their reputation and what people think when they're around them. That's what it was all about for them. But they wanted absolutely nothing to do with God at all. And Jesus exposes their heart. And it says that the Father's heart is angry when he sees that disposition with that kind of rejection of the gospel that he sent. Another question that you're thinking, You're thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jesus just say to the host of that feast, when you have a feast, invite the maim and the poor and the lame and the blind? But didn't this father here not invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind until the rich, pious, religious people refused the invitation? Isn't this an inconsistency here? Shouldn't he have invited the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind first? beforehand and then maybe extended the invitation to the rich later if that was the case no no here's the point what jesus is saying is this is that the father in his heart is not 
only and primarily looking for the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. But he also extends his invitation to the rich and to the pious and to the accomplished. It's an all-inclusive gospel. It's a whosoever gospel. And though it's the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind that often receive it and find it, God's hands are open just as much to the rich and to the wealthy and to the pious. And Jesus, through this, is extending grace even to those that were setting him up in this moment right now, seeking to catch him and snare him in his own words. Well, Jesus says, not one of them that were bidden will taste of my supper. It's interesting. So Jesus ends that feast. I love that scene because in my mind, I see this man who's half the age of everyone there, but twice as strong. It's such an incredible picture of Jesus, not just doing what they didn't want, but then giving them teaching that so contradicts and so puts them in their place, silencing the adversary. That's what God always does. Well, it says in verse 25 that he went, or that there went then great multitudes with him. I'm going to read now uh, all the way to the end of the chapter just so that you can catch the whole scene at once and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll tie it all together. It says, There went great multitudes with him and he turned and he said to them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or... What king, going to make war against another king, sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassage and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he has he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus departs from this Pharisee's house, and now as he's making his way down to Jerusalem, what he notices is he notices that there is a great multitude of people that are now following him. The crowd has thickened once again. And Jesus has this thing that he likes to do when the crowds begin to thicken. He'll say something that will make them consider their motivation and the reason why they're following. Remember in John chapter 5 when Jesus turned to the multitudes of people that were there seeking bread and you know, free food. And he said to them, he said, my body is food and my blood is drink. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have life. And it says that many of the people that were there turned and departed at that time. And even the apostles, Peter came to him and said, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you saying these things? And Jesus said, are you going to go too, Peter? Do you want to turn and go? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter was either saying, 
Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Or he was saying, Lord, we got nowhere else to go, but we might. I mean, that was crazy what you just said, you know. But Jesus does this. And here he sees the multitudes following, thronging him, and knowing in his mind and in his heart that many of them have the wrong motive and wrong reason for the following. He turns to them, and he gives to them three conditions that make them disqualified from being his disciple. The first, he says, if any man does not hate his father, his mother, his brethren, he cannot be my disciple. Then number two, if a man does not take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. And then number three, if any man will not forsake everything that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So what is it that Jesus is saying here? Well, let's take the first one. He says, first of all, that those that don't, and here's what it is, that don't love me supremely cannot be my disciple. It it, it rubs us, doesn't it, a little bit when we hear Jesus say, if any man comes to me and doesn't hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and his own life also, that he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying here? Are we to literally hate? Is he radicalizing us? Is he turning us into jihadists, martyrs? Is that what this is about? No, no, no. Understand this. That what this is, is not literal, but it is comparative. In other words, what Jesus is saying to us here is that the love that we have for him must be supreme. And it must be supreme to a point where every other love within our life looks like hate comparatively. How do we know that that's what he's saying? Because every other verse in the Bible that talks about human relationships commands us to love, doesn't it? I mean, the Bible is very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I have have not love, I am nothing. If I have every gift, if I bestow my goods, if I'm a martyr and I die a martyr's death, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a sounding gong. I'm a tinkling cymbal. Love is patient. And God says, these things abide, faith, hope, and love. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, that the evidence of God working in our life is that we're going to love people. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Jesus taught us you're even to love your enemies. So what Jesus is saying here is not that we're literally to hate people, but what he's saying is this, and get it because he means it, is that the love that we're to have towards him is to be supreme above every other love that exists within our life. That's what it is that Jesus is calling us into uh, with, with that kind of love. Now, why is this listed first amongst these three things that are absolutely essential for us if we're gonna be disciples of Christ? Here's why. Because unless that part of my life and my affection is settled in my relationship between me and God, then it will be absolutely impossible for me to do the other two and for me to make it as a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, what Jesus is doing here is not laying down terms of a contract and saying, are you willing to hate everybody and love me more? And are you willing to take up your cross? And are you willing to forsake all? If so, sign on the dotted line. That's not the point. That's not the idea or the spirit behind it, that it's a requirement. Here's the the idea, is that in our pursuit of his will for our lives, If we don't do those things, we're not going to make it. It's not going to work because he knows what it's going to cost us within this life. 
And he knows that those are the terms if we're going to be successful. The second thing that he says that we must do if we want to be his disciple is he said that we must be willing to bear our cross and follow him. Now, the cross was an instrument of death. It would be the equivalent of an electric chair or a lethal injection in today's understanding. It was a means of crucifixion whereby someone who is accused and uh, and, and, and condemned because of a crime that they would pay the penalty of death. And Jesus now places that death in the life of every one of his followers. He says, if you're not willing to die, then you're not able to be my disciple. Now, death in the context of the cross in the Christian life means two things. Number one, it means that we must be willing to die literally. That we must be willing to lay down our life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you of the two that that one's far easier? It would be so much easier to die a martyr's death in the name of Jesus than it is to do what Jesus is actually asking us to do in the exhortation of the verse. I mean, think about it. I mean, right now, like, I mean, think about your worst day of work, the worst day of your entire life on your job when you're just toiling. I remember for me, it used to be uh, when we would have to demo. I hated demolition ripping lath and plaster off the wall and you're filled with blood and cuts from the jagged. I hate, you breathe, you blow your nose and it's black for three days. I mean, that was just, to me, that was the worst. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Now imagine, okay, imagine you're in the middle, the thick of that filth, waste, worst day. And all of a sudden, you have to go home early. You, You know, the day ends, the fire alarm goes off, the boss calls and says, hey, you know what, take off. That's like the best thing that could ever happen, right? I mean, that's death for the Christian. Do you understand that? I mean, what we're facing right now in the world is nothing. I mean, it's filth compared to the glory that's away. If we have to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ, that's a gift. That's like him saying, all right, come home. (laughs) Really? You know, this is great. But the other context, connotation that the cross has within the life of a believer or a disciple of Jesus Christ is, is that of laying down your life daily while you yet live in order to embrace his will and his desire and his design for your life. It's to lay down your will, your plans, your ambition, your selfishness for the sake of embracing the life that he has called you into. And that is actually much more difficult to do on a daily basis than it is to just lay down our life literally on a one-time basis. But Jesus says it must be done. Now, I'm thankful that he then illustrates exactly what that means. Because without illustrations, I'm looking at this going, okay, Lord, I hear you, but I don't know exactly what that means. And so what Jesus does is he gives two little illustrations that explain what it means. The first involves this man who builds a tower. And he says that no one who's going to build this tower doesn't first sit down and figure out if he has enough to finish the tower so that he doesn't lay a foundation and then have to tuck his tail in shame because he didn't have sufficient uh, to finish this tower. Now understand something. The tower would be built most often in a vineyard or in a field where a harvest would regularly be made. And the reason why someone would build a tower there would not be simply just because, hey, a tower would look nice here in the middle of this vineyard. There would be a reason why you would build it. 
And the first reason would be to protect your crop. It would be a place where you could set a watchman and he could watch for not just people that would steal it, which happened in those days, but he could also watch for predators, raccoons and vermin that would come in and that would tarnish it and taint it. And so it would protect the crop. It would also be a means of storage. At the end of each day's harvest, you would have a place to bring in what you gathered for that day and it would be kept safe or it could be bound up so that then it could on another uh, occasion be brought to market and be sold uh, to make a profit. And then the third reason, very practically, is it would provide lodging for the owner of the vineyard or for the workmen in the vineyard so that they'd be able to get the absolute most out of their daylight and they wouldn't have to travel uh, to and from and waste uh, time that they could be harvesting in traveling because the harvest time was so uh, precious. It was measured and you could only do it when you could do it. And it was weather dependent and all the rest. And so there would be many practical reasons why you would want to build a tower. And so the person who owns that vineyard is looking at the landscape of all of this and saying it would be to our profit and our advantage to have one of these. That's step one, a reason why. Then step two is, do I have enough money, enough time and enough energy and resources to see this tower project started and brought through and carried to completion? Because the worst thing I could do right now is start this project, take up a portion of my field, build it halfway, not have enough to finish it, and now not only do I not have my tower, but I'm also embarrassed because everybody's driving by it every day saying, look, there's the guy that started to build a tower and he didn't have enough money to finish it, and now I'm ashamed and embarrassed and the thing is just there as a blight to my reputation in my field. So what Jesus is saying is this, is that there's a reason why you want a tower But then there's an assessment that must be made. And the question that must be asked individually is, do I have what it takes to finish the building of this tower that I might enjoy the reason why I want a tower? Then he gives a second illustration that's very similar to the first, but it adds one very crucial aspect in this understanding of the cross in the Christian life. It's the illustration of a person who would go to war. And he says that none of you would go to war in a situation where you only have 10,000 people fighting on your side. And the enemy that you are fighting against has 20,000 on their side and therefore the odds are stacked against you two to one. Now, why in God's creation would anyone go into a battle situation when they only have 10,000 and the enemy has 20,000? There's a reason why you would do that. I don't know what the reason would be in this particular instance, but probably it's either because they want freedom, they're being oppressed by that enemy, and the price of freedom is is so worthy that they're willing to risk everything that they've got to go get it. Or there are spoils to be had, if I'm the victor in that battle, that are so great that they are worth me putting everything down on the line, that this is do or die, that I'm either going to get what it is that I went out for or I'm going to die in the process. And that's the only reason why someone with 10,000 would go against someone with 20,000 is that the prize is worthy of the price. What it's going to cost me to go and get this is worth it to the point that if I don't get it, I would rather die than not have it. And Jesus says, if you don't have that mentality that having this prize is worth whatever it's going to cost, then what's going to happen in your life very naturally is that you're going to come to a point where you realize this is bigger than me. 
This costs more than I thought it was going to cost. The risk in this is very, very great, and I don't know how to handle this type of risk. And so I'm not going to go through with this battle. Instead, I'm going to seek conditions of compromise so that I don't have to go into this battle and fight, and I will instead choose to exist in the conditions that are presently what my life is, because I I just decided that it isn't worth what it's going to cost me in order to gain what I would have by going to battle against this enemy. And Jesus then applies that illustration by saying, he that forsaketh not all that he has cannot be my disciple. Because understand this, Christian, is that if you want to live the Christian life and be a disciple of Christ and have the prize that it is to be a disciple of Christ, then know this, that it will cost you everything. That it is an all-in gospel and it is an all-in call. Well, then you ask the question and you say, well, what then is the prize? What is it that we will attain and gain that would make it worth it for me to give all that I have to follow after him? Well, there's a heavenly side to that and there's an earthly side to that. On the heavenly side, I get forgiveness of sins. Jesus taking my place as a substitute upon the cross so that his righteousness becomes mine and my sinfulness is laid upon him, which then brings me into a right relationship with God. I'm now redeemed and brought back into fellowship with him and the lights are turned on, which then in turn makes me one with Jesus Christ, which then entitles me to all that he himself has, which means I have access to God through prayer. I have a baptism of power and every other thing that the Bible says is ours because we're in Christ Jesus. And that ensures me a place in the kingdom of God that when he calls his servants home, there's a place there with my name on it. And all of that is mine. And let me tell you that that is a worthy prize. But that is not the context through which Jesus is talking to the people that are following behind him in droves and in thicknesses. He's talking about the earthly element of the prize that's involved in following him. And understand this, Christian. Here's what it is. Is that when we have Christ, and that when we are disciples of Christ in the truest context of the word, then what that does is it enables me to discover his will and his plan for my life. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that he has created us in Christ Jesus for good works which he has before prepared that we should walk in them. God has a plan. There's a purpose. There's a reason why we're made. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says that for his pleasure, all things were created. We were created for his pleasure and for his will. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, the apostle Paul prayed for the church at Colossae. He said that you might be filled with spiritual understanding and the knowledge of his will. And God has a will and a plan for every one of us. But understand this, that if you and I are going to embrace what it is that God has and what he's ordained for our lives, then in order for that to happen, we must, and it's a must, love God supremely with everything that we are, and we must bear our cross daily, and we must be willing and ready to forsake all for the sake of following him. And here's why, here's why those things are essential. Because our expectation, and listen, we're almost done, but listen, Our expectation almost 
never, and I only say almost because I don't know everything. If I knew everything, I'm almost sure I would say always. But our expectation almost never aligns with his plans. The group of people that were following Jesus when he said these words expected that he was going to march into Jerusalem like a warrior, remove the yoke of Roman authority, bring down and establish the kingdom of God, and they were going to be there at his right hand saying, marching in the Lord's army, you know, and this whole thing was going to happen and this glorious kingdom was going to ensue. That's not at all what was going to take place when Jesus got to Jerusalem. If that was their expectation, their expectations were soon to be dashed because he wasn't going there to reign in glory. He was going there to be crucified as a savior upon a cross. And so the reason why they were following him was for one thing, but what they were going to get was something altogether. Their expectations didn't match up with the plan and the purpose that he had. Now, bring it into your own life. Why are you tonight following Jesus Christ? What is the expectation that you have that God is going to do in your life? What is the promise, perhaps, that he's laid upon your heart or the purpose that he's revealed in you, in your life and in your heart? Let me ask you, how is that promise and that purpose going to be realized? You know what the answer is? I don't know. And neither do you. Only he does but I can guarantee you one thing, it's not going to happen in the way or in the time or by the process that you think it is. And if you're not settled in the fact that he loves you unconditionally and that love is reciprocated back to him, and if you're not then willing to accept however and whatever he does within your life and in my life, in the bringing forth of his plan and his promise and his goodness, And if we're not willing to go wherever he follows, no matter what it costs, then we will not see the realization of those things done within our lives. See, his promise to us is that he has a plan. His promise, he says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts for peace and not of evil, to bring you to an expected end, a future and a hope. The Bible says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask think or imagine which means this is that whatever god has planned for you and me on this side of eternity is better than what we would plan and purpose for ourselves so how do we attain it it's romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto him which is your reasonable service that you might then prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so you say, God, it's in my heart to have this job or to have this spouse or to live in that place or to relocate. And God, I want this so bad that it hurts. God says, trust me. At that point, we have a choice. We can either say, okay, God, I'm willing to trust you because I know that you love me more than I love myself and I know that you'll do for me greater than I would do for myself and I know that you want for me better than what I would want for myself. Or I can say, God, this hurts so bad and I want this so bad that I'm not willing to pay the price of what it's going to take. I'm going to compromise and I'll take what I want now and let the chips fall where they may later. 
And the price that you pay for making that kind of compromise is that you never realize what it is that God made you for on this side of eternity because you've chosen something less than what God wanted for you ultimately. Jesus closes with the illustration concerning salt. He says salt is good, but if the salt loses its savor, he says, wherewith shall it be salt? It's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus uses salt as a picture of the Christian or of the Christian life. He says, you are the salt of the earth. So what does it mean that salt would lose its savor? Did you know this? I learned this this week. Is that it is impossible for salt to lose its savor. NaO2, I believe that's right. If I'm not, I'll get an email about it. Uh, what is it? Is that right? NaO2, that's table salt, right? NaCl, thank you, sodium chloride. Okay, I, I felt it. The check engine light went on. You know, it wasn't right, but <laughs> it cannot lose its saltiness. But what happens oftentimes is that salt or table salt gets mixed together with other compounds. And if the NaCl or the salt is removed from that compound, then what you have is something that has the appearance of salt, but it has absolutely no savor at all whatsoever. What happens oftentimes in the life of many Christians is this, is that we compromise and we say, God, I'm going to trade some salt for for some other substance. And in the process, we're trading the substance of God for substance that cannot ultimately satisfy. And we miss out on the life that he has for us. And so Jesus says these things are essential for you to be my disciples, that you must love me supremely. You must take up your cross daily and you must must reckon that all things are loss for the excellency of knowing and having my will. Not because I'm a tyrant and I'm saying that these are the terms, because I'm saying that you cannot know my ways. My ways are as high as the heavens above your ways and past finding out. And without that type of surrender, You'll never see it. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for this exhortation, Lord, that uh, challenges us, that gives to us, Lord, your heart and your counsel and your wisdom and your will. And Lord, tonight, if we could, Lord, help us to see ourselves in that group of people that were following you in those days. And I pray that tonight, Lord, you would allow that there would be a great searching of our motives and of our hearts. And Lord, that you would give us the grace to be able to see within ourselves for what reason we're following and if indeed our hearts are in that place, Lord, where we are absolutely surrendered to you. We recognize, Lord, that you're worthy of all. And we believe, Lord, that your calling and purpose is greater than than what we could ever plan or purpose for ourselves. So Lord, would you help us tonight? And where there needs to be things laid down afresh upon the altar, Lord, where there needs to be things that are re-surrendered and brought again to the altar of living sacrifice, Lord, that you would give us the grace to do it. And Father, that we might feel the conviction and the weight of your Spirit upon us. Lord, that we might truly be your disciples in the fullest sense. And that we would realize for us, Lord, not just what we have waiting for us on the other side, but that we would bear good fruit for you on this side. And so we ask you, Lord, tonight, do your will within each one of us. Take your surgeon's scalpel and cut away those things that don't belong and breathe life into the things that do. And may we bear fruit for your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.